ask you to take your Bibles, and I'm headed to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, as we had going this evening. And if you haven't been with us, what we've been doing on Sunday nights is called Faith's Facts for the Families. We're talking about biblical principles that apply to the family. What we're going to do this evening is not do a a simple exposition of a passage. We're going to start there, but then we're going to do more of what we, you might call, or I might call, counseling principles that we might give that would talk about how to better control our tongues and our temper. Let's start off this way, though. Let's start off. There's myths and legends that are abounding. Using a cell phone will, when pumping gas, can cause an explosion of the, at the pump. True or false? That has been busted, okay? That there really isn't something in that phone that's going to set it off. Here's one. Babies who are exposed to classical music will have higher IQs than those who aren't exposed to good music. True or false? Busted. It's based on a study that comes out of the University of California in 1993 where they took a number of college students, had them listen to classical music, and then gave them a second IQ test. Supposedly by this one study, then they showed a great increase, so classical music was said for years that it increased. A number of universities since that time have started to follow up and do research and say, okay, what's the deal here? Does classical music all of a sudden you know, stir up some of the brain cells? None other the institutions have been ever able to uh, do the exact same, come up with the exact same results as the University of California. So many have come to the conclusion it's not a truism, but it's more of something based on one false study. Here's another one. Mr. Rogers was a Navy SEAL in Vietnam. He had several kills. He wore sweaters all the time to cover up the tattoos. That is not true. I know that some of you are disappointed. You know, you thought the neighborhood had violence. It's not the case. Okay, bulls get enraged when they see the color red. That is false, okay? It's not the color, it's the movement that is taking place in front of them. Cracking your knuckles will probably result in arthritis in those knuckles. My mother told me this all the time, and I never did it, but she said it to my siblings. It's false. It's not true. Here's one. Driving angry results in using more gasoline. (laughs) True or false? It is true, okay? Because usually, what do you do when you're angry? You drive faster, okay? So use more gasoline. Here's one about families, about relationships, okay? Godly people don't have major conflicts with others close to them. (laughs) Theoretically, this is supposed to be true, but practically speaking, do even godly people at times have some conflicts? If that's not the case, then what do we call Barnabas and Saul? Okay, in their close relationship, that they they had tensions there. We're going to call this one busted. Here's one for you. Parents of teens will have major arguments. Parents and teens will have major arguments. You're not touching this one at all. Nobody wants to say anything. It's busted. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen. That's like saying, I have a two-year-old, therefore he's always going to be in trouble, or boys are worse than girls. Well, that might be a little bit more true. No, no. The idea that we will have arguments and fights and big blowouts, that's just, that's a falsehood. That doesn't have to be the case in a Christian home. Will there be tensions? Yes. But does it have to be major arguments? No. Here's one for you. Conflicts always hurt close relationships. Therefore, avoid conflicts at all costs. That's got to be a false, okay? 
It's got to be false. In fact, let's, let's set up a, a truism. Conflicts aren't the problems. Having disagreements aren't the problems. Okay? The problem is, how do we handle those disagreements? How do we respond to those situations? Because the reality is, if we handle them wrong, yes, then we will push away other people around us. But if we handle them right, we can be drawn closer together. Even in a family, even in a marriage, or with a parent, or a sibling relationship. If we do things right, it'll, it'll work to our benefit. Let's make this statement. We made this about five years ago in a morning series that I said, problems can strengthen our relationships forever. We're going to come back to this, and we're going to use this as an anachronism of what to do when problems arise, when tensions arise, when you feel like an argument is about ready to you know, get to a point where we're going to have an explosion. And we'll give you some practical advice based on problems can strengthen strengthen our relationships forever. But let's back up. Let's do this first of all, okay? Uh, what are we to do? Here's our question. What do we do when tensions, when, when you know, things aren't going right in the house? Things are breaking down, including you or your plans or some device or the car or the money to pay the bills, and tensions are arising. What do we do? How do we handle that when all of a sudden we feel like we're going to have some conversation here that's going to be blow, a blowout or a blow up? What are we supposed to do? First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 12 is an interesting passage. In the context, if you look at the first few verses right before that, he starts off saying, likewise, verse 1, you wives. And he talks about wives and husbands' relationships in the first seven verses. He talks about what the wife is to do. She's supposed to be worrying about having a good relationship with her husband. She's supposed to be having that meek and quiet spirit. She's supposed to be respectful to her husband. Then in verse 7, he shifts it and talks about husbands. Here's what you're supposed to do. And we looked at both these, these texts here a couple weeks ago where he says to the husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as the weaker vessel, being heirs together, that your prayers be not hindered. Then he continues a thought. Finally, and he goes on. He's going to give practical advice. Let's, let's take the verses and let's go through it. He's talking about how to handle some of those conflicts. What if you're in a family situation and you're trying to have that meek and quiet spirit? You're trying to work at relationships here. You're trying to be respectful. You're trying to live with them according to knowledge, but it's not working out real great. And all of a sudden there's tensions growing and there's feelings that are getting hurt and there's on the verge of an argument. What do we do with that? Here's what he says in the text. Finally, all of you have unity of mind sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Okay, let's, let's dissect this. How does that look in your and my life who claim to be, we're believers who are following the Bible? He's talking about unity. In this family relationship, whether it be with a marriage, whether it be with brothers and sisters, whether it be with, with children, what we want to do is we want to work on, a, on keeping striving to have some form of unity. We want to have compassion. We want to show compassion. Not, <coughs> not anger, not vengeful thoughts, but rather a compassion, that tender heart. We want to have a spirit of humility. A spirit of humility does not have to uh, come to a point where you say, I'm right, they're wrong. That, we don't have to win the argument. We don't have to prove that we're the one who's right. That, that's not a spirit of humility. Now, is that an essential, uh, essential quality in some discussions? True. But humility is how we present it, how we go about it. Do not repay evil for evil. We're not supposed to strike back. If something is said, if something is done, we're not supposed to, okay, my sibling, even adult sibling, said something to me, it hurts, therefore I've got to launch back at them. No, that's not true. In fact, he's calling and saying, let's not do this. 
Let's not do what we've normally done. Let's work at showing something different. Let's continue the passage. On the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. What's he saying? In these people relationships at work with family members, he's saying kindness when you're hurt. You respond with kindness rather than striking back, rather than reviling back. You show a form of kindness. In fact, you're supposed to have that kind speech, that you're supposed to be blessing others, not cursing them, not attacking them, not calling them down or calling them names, but rather you're supposed to bring blessings upon them, encouragement to them. Here's something else, self-control. Don't let your tongue all of a sudden start saying things that are going to cause some deep, deep, deep hurts. They, the, the person hurt you. They forgot something. They, they said something. They, they were inconsiderate of your time, and you want to strike back. You're hurt, you're bothered, and you want to let them have a piece of your mind. And he says, don't do this, don't do this. Practice self-control. Don't get upset. Don't get vengeful in any way. And he says, keep your lips from speaking deceit. And he goes on, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Be honest. Even in the midst of these discussions, in the midst of an argument, in the midst of, of tension between you, a co-worker, you and somebody in your family, be honest. Don't resort to lying, to exaggerations. Don't resort to everybody in the world does it. Yeah, as the argument. He says, be honest in that case. Do good to the others. This is to be your priority, to do good to others. That instead of doing evil, rather, you're going to give them, load them up with goodness and response. Seek peace. In fact, he says, pursue it, which brings us to another idea. It's a word that we don't want to use too much in our, in our vocabulary, but this is a word when relationships, this is essential. We need to learn to compromise. To find that common bond, that common unity that says, okay, how do we, how do we handle this discussion, this argument, this hurt? What do we do in the future? We don't, we don't agree with doing something financially. We don't agree with how we're taking care of elderly parents, we, you and a sibling. What do we do? Find some form of compromise. Pursue after it. Seek after it. Then he ends up, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What he's saying in in essence is you and me, the way we walk with others, our family members, our kids, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our spouses, the way we treat them affects how the Lord and I walk together. If I'm not walking in a right relationship with my wife, then I can't have a right relationship with the Lord. If I don't have a right relationship with my kids... I can't have a good relationship with the Lord. If I allow anger or bitterness towards one of my siblings or towards my parents or whatever because they, you know, they had favorites years ago and were 60 years, 50 years beyond that, but it still bothers me, it's going to hurt my relationship with the Lord. And so he's very clear in this text saying, you and I are to live on a different level, a different plane when it comes to people relationships. Now, how does that look in a very simple, practical way in your family? How does this look between a husband and wife, parents and, and their kids, the, uh, the kids towards their parents, siblings, one to another? How does it look towards you, towards your, uh, your elderly parents or your, your adult siblings? There's so many practical things that can come out of this. But this all basically drives us to say we've got to better control our tongues and our temper. 
Now, how do we do that? Where do we go from here? Let, let's start making some don'ts here, a list of things we don't want to do. When we are facing a tense situation, and it could be at work, it could be at school, it could be in your home, okay, which is where it affects most of us. Don't do the turtle thing. Don't all of a sudden say, I'm going to hide from any conversations. They're going to be tough conversations. The first sign of any kind of potential problem, I'm going to flee. I'm going to put my head in the sand. I'm going to do an ostrich. I'm going to do a turtle. And I'm just going to pretend that there's no problems. And even if they're bothered, that's okay. I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist. Don't do that. In fact, let's add to it. Don't go public with your conflicts. We know from Matthew 5 that Jesus said if you have fault or, or a problem with somebody, don't go to other people, but rather go to the person with whom you have a problem. The issue is that we keep our disagreements, we keep our conflicts, we keep them private. We deal with the issues one-on-one -on -one instead of involving other people. Now, if it's a public issue, yes, we have to be public. But if it's a private family issue, if the problem's with another family member, go to them. Don't go to everybody else. Don't go to the cousins. Don't go to your other siblings. If you have a problem with mom and dad, go to mom and dad. If you have a problem with one of your brothers and sisters, go to the brother and sister without going to everybody else in the clan. Be biblical in handling those tensions. The idea of discussing things as a family, okay, as parents, one of the rules that we had for our relationships, if Deb and I had a disagreement, that disagreement is not going to be discussed before the, before the kids. It was never to be discussed before the kids. We were always to provide before the kids a unified uh, uh, I was going to say front because it's a battle, <laughs> uh, a unified position. That it wasn't a position where we're arguing in front of the kids. There is no good that can come out of that. But rather, if we needed to have time to have a discussion and the kids were there, we should go in private, have our discussion, have our conversation. She can admit she's wrong and Wayne's always right at those moments in private. That didn't happen. Okay. But the idea is we didn't come before the kids and do those arguments in front of them. And we don't need to bring in, and this is so typical of we people, we've got to get everybody rallied to our side. That everybody, all the cousins agree with me, grandma and grandpa are whatever, you know, in a negative sense. Keep your, your conflicts, your issues with somebody private. It is so, so, so clear in Scripture. If you have fault, go to that person. Don't go to everybody else. Let me give you another don't. Okay? Don't ignore or dismiss your deep hurts. I'm, I'm qualifying this. Your deep hurts. Your, your really struggling situations. Or don't dismiss or ignore the deep hurts of somebody in your family. We men are so good at this. It didn't bother me, so I don't know why it bothers her. And we can just ignore it. I don't know why my kids are upset. It, I'm not upset. You know, I just gave them the rule. And it's, you know, I don't care. I'm the head of the house. And I can just dominate and be dictatorial without consideration that they may be deeply hurt. And don't do that. Don't do that at all. In fact, don't live with a chip on your shoulder. If you've been hurt... Okay, don't respond by saying, we'll just ignore it, we'll pretend it goes away. It's, uh, Christian psychologists and therapists, as well as secular, have come up with, they're saying there's basically four stages of hurting individuals. And they describe this process of people getting hurt. They could be hurt by a conversation. They could be hurt by somebody just totally forgetting their birthday. They could be hurt by somebody having an expectation that is you know, just totally uh, beyond possibilities. They could be 
hurt by some comment made about their child or about something that they have done, a lack of appreciation. Take whatever hurt there is. Okay, let's put it out there. That there's hurts that are made, unintended or intentional hurts. Usually it falls into these stages that, first of all, it starts with somebody's wounded. Somebody has been hurt, again, intentionally or unintentionally. We don't know. It happens to all of us. We get bothered. We get bugged. We get bothered. We get bugged that somebody slid through the stop sign and almost hit us on Thursday. And we get upset about it. You know, despite the fact that they couldn't help it, the weather was there. I got bugged, first of all. And Thursday, I got kind of bugged. First thing I saw was this road got closed. A tree fell on the line, so early in the morning on Thursday, they closed the road, and so people had to turn around. Well, people were turning around, and the place that they would turn around, since the street wasn't blocked up here, was they'd come down to our driveways uh, here at the church, and they would see, okay, the road's closed, so they want to turn around. There's a mailbox out there. And there's a light post out there. So they made the right assumption that there's a driveway there. I can pull into this church parking lot and turn around. Makes perfect sense. But then I saw a number of people turning around on our front lawn. And my original reaction was, how dare those stupid drivers drive on our lawn? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop. They couldn't tell where our lawn was. Right? Oh, you weren't here. You couldn't see it. Okay. You couldn't tell anything out there. You had no idea. Is it a parking lot? Is it a lawn? You saw the trees periodically. You saw the islands. But that, that front yard looks very inviting. It's flat. And they needed to turn around. And so my, my initial frustration was just because I didn't put myself in their shoes. Does that ever happen to you that you get upset and you... No, see, you guys are much better than I. You would never do that. Things happen, and sometimes we don't get over them. We don't learn how to deal with them, or we choose not to deal with them. But we, we're wounded, we're upset, we're bothered. And what happens is if we don't deal with it, or if we don't get over it, it's going to turn to something worse. So you've got the wounded heart. Okay, That's where we're all at at some time or point. If it's not dealt with, it goes into what's called the cold heart. The cold heart is this. It's when somebody has been hurt, okay, unintentional or, or intentional, and they're really bothered, but their normal response is this. I, I, I'm not going to bring it up. If I bring it up, it's going to be a blow-up. But it bothers me. And I'm walking around here thinking negative about my parent or my kid or my spouse or my relative. And I'm really upset with them, but I don't have the nerve, I don't have the, compa- the compulsion to talk with them about it, but I'm going to stew about it. I'm going to be bugged about it. I'm going to assume they're going to do it again because they're dumb or they're wicked or they're insensitive or they're, and you put whatever you want. And it starts growing into this thinking negative about that person, thinking negative about that person, thinking negative about that person with the expectation that they're going to fail you again. They're going to disappoint you again. And by the way, if you're constantly thinking that about somebody else, what will they do? They will hurt you again. They will fail you again. They will do something that will bother you. So you start with, the first of all, the wounded heart. Then you don't deal with it. You just let it fester, fester. You get into this cold heart where all of a sudden it's just like, okay, I'm not bothered, I'm not bothered, but you really are. And you're really holding on to it. That can lead to this. 
Okay, if you don't change, if you don't address it, it can lead to what many, uh, many of the therapists and counselors would say it will lead to a hard heart. This is where now you've entered into a really bad zone. This is the idea that they, then when there's conversation that comes up, you're bitter. It's gotten more than just anger. <coughs> now you've got bitterness. You've been thinking about how terrible this person is, how terrible that they treat you, how awful they are, how that you're not the favorite, others are the favorite, and your parents don't really care. And when they try to talk to you about it, or they try to deal with the issue, you refuse to make things right. You refuse to talk. You refuse to change your attitude. You refuse. And everyone around you, or including yourself, you're living on eggshells because it's going to explode. Because you're walking around with a, with a fuse that's half lit and it's ready to blow up because somebody has not learned to deal with the hurts and the heartaches in a biblical fashion. They've chosen just to harbor it, just to sit on it, just to let it fester, just to think negative. Neg- think negative. You do this at work. You do this at home. We do this with, with people that we just expect them to fail, and they will. They will fail us. Here's where it gets really a problem. This is for marriages where it becomes catastrophe. Is all of a sudden comes to an apathetic heart. It comes to a point where the person doesn't even want to work with the relationship anymore. They don't care. They, they don't like the person. They might love them, but they don't like them. And they just basically, I want nothing to do with the person. Well, we're here. We're just kind of enduring. It's a broken relationship comes to a point of apathy. It happens in, with relationships with parents. It happens with relationships with spouse. It happens with brother and sister relationships. That it's come to a point that it's not been dealt with and people have harbored this chip on their shoulder and it grows to a point that it kills the affection that should be there according to the Word of God. Don't let it come that way. Don't let it get that far. You have to say, okay, if there's a problem, if there's difficulties, we need to talk. Oh, let me flip side this. Some of you aren't, the the problem isn't you don't want to talk about it. You know, you don't want to express something. Some of you, the problem is you convey to the other person, how dare them come and say that I've done something wrong. You've got this attitude that comes across that if they were to say something, you're going to take their head off. And then they don't want to talk to you. So we need to go back and say, okay, what else don't we do? We don't resort to lying. In the middle of these difficulties, in the middle of the tensions, we've already alluded to this, that Peter says, don't lie. Don't exaggerate. Don't blow the situation you know, out of the water. I'm amazed sometimes when I sit with people who have conflicts in their relationships, how the facts have been distorted for either side or both sides. He says, don't do that. Don't engage in conflicts just to get your way. I want my way, so I'm going to create, I'm going to disturb the peace of the household just so that they will say, they'll give me, give me what I want. <clears throat> when we were teenagers, we got really good at this in my family. Our family was, was a dysfunctional family. We weren't born again. We had no clue on how to do things. We started off well, but then we led a, a family business, and it, it created a lot of tensions and pressures, working together, living together, you know, 24-7. And, uh, and this business becoming our relationship focal point, not relationships normally. It was all about the business, the business, the business. And so there would be times that we would stir up a little bit of a conflict, We're working in the shop, and there's customers there, and we knew how to get my dad to say yes to things. Well, I shouldn't say we. My my siblings knew how to do this. 
Okay, we'll, they're not here. Okay, but we knew how, and I was probably the worst of them all, is that if I started something, if I created a little bit of tension in front of a customer, my dad would give way real quick because he didn't want to lose the customer or lose face in front of the customer. So we could just bring up something and, you know, in the middle of saying, hey, Dad, can we get off work? Can we get the car? Can we do this? You know, and then bring up something negative with it. And we would get our way. How awful. It worked, but how awful. You know, the Bible describes it this way. From whence comes the wars and fightings among you? Come they not even of your own lust? You lust, you have not. You kill, you desire to have, cannot obtain. You fight, you war, yet you have not because you have not. The whole point is... Our selfishness can lead to conflicts. I want things my way. And if I don't get them my way, I'm going to create a conflict. How, how awful. How terrible. Don't do this. Don't resort to calling in the heavy artillery. The heavy artillery is verbal assaults. There are a number of us that when we are verbally attacked, we're going to, we're going to back off. We, we don't like verbal attack. And some people are really good at when all of a sudden there's a tension, we can get the other person to surrender by certain things we say, by certain things we do, by certain words that we say. Here, let me give you illustrations of, of making snide comments. The heavy artillery. Why do you, why is it you wear your wedding ring on the wrong finger? The wife asked the husband. His response, because it reminds me I married the wrong woman. Okay, now that can be, a, there's a slight humor here. But it's a snide way of shooting back. Here's one for you. We have a good marriage because we both love the same man. You. Okay? She's frustrated, obviously. The idea of the wife saying, you love me more than you love football. His response, maybe so, but I do love you more than I love baseball. Well, that's supposed to be encouraging. That's supposed to be a pick-me-up. They go to the counselor, and the counselor says to the wife, what do you have, you and your husband have in common? Her verbal assault, just one thing. Neither of us can stand each other. Okay, th- those are not the, the right attitude to have, the right response, the right approach to the things. Here's what the Bible says. Put up the sword. The idea is for all that take up the sword are going to perish. The sword being your tongue, your mouth. Okay, let's, let's make that analogy. He says in the word of God, set a watch, O Lord, before my lips. Keep the doors of my mouth. He or, or said it both ways. But the idea is be careful what you say. Uh, I grew up in a home that it was, it was classic portrayal that if there was tension arising, in our home, we learned how to have one cutting phrase for this person, this person, this person, this person. And if we would use that one cutting phrase, whether it be about the way they look, what they do, something quirky that they have done in the past that they're embarrassed about, but we could have that one verbal law, uh, assault and we could bring it up at, at one of those moments and we could bury the other person in any discussion because they would just crumble. And we got pretty good at it with one another. And we were, you know, we, to this day in, our, in, our, in my siblings and, and parental family, there are some who continue the verbal assaults. That they know what to say, what bushes, bush, uh, buttons to push at certain moments to just hurt. There is nothing spiritual about doing that. When I look back and see what I learned and how I grew up and how that became such a part of my life, it is a shame. It is an embarrassment before Jesus Christ that in, that, in our home we had learned how to verbally attack so we could win any argument. For the sake of winning, we could be cruel with our speech. Don't do that. 
Don't do that. Avoid that at all costs. Don't paint yourself in a corner. If you're in a situation where there's tensions. Do you remember Elijah? The story we talked about. Elijah is away from the Lord. He's angry. He's upset. Nobody is serving God the way I'm serving God. He's in the cave. And God has to come to him multiple times because he's so discouraged. He loves his depression. This sounds odd. But he likes the idea that I'm miserable and I'm going to stay miserable. And he's just, he's just insistent that there's no hope, there's no change here. This is the way it's got to be. And God has come to him and says, I, I, I'm, the, I'm in charge of the fire, the wind, the earthquake, and I can do a work here. But Elijah is convinced there's no possible hope. There is always hope. Except the Lord build the house, they that labor, labor in vain. Psalm 127. Do you realize in the Hebrew it says, except the Lord rebuild the house? In the Hebrew it's not building from scratch, it is restructuring, renovating the house. The point is, there is always some options that we can get and do improvement in the family situation. Don't ever look at your family as your enemy. Your, your spouse, your parents, your kids, that they are against you. We react to enemies this way. When we know that there's an enemy, we become defensive. We retaliate. We bring in the you know, heavy power. Okay? We feel like we've got to beat them. We, we come to a point that they've got to surrender. It's the way some of you play table games. Okay? You are going to win at all costs. Okay? The, com- comp- the competitive spirit is really way up there. Don't get into discussions in your home with that same competition spirit. Don't insist you've got to make sure that you are right and they are wrong and they see your point of view absolutely positively. Don't go there. Be very, very careful in this whole idea. Don't react to everything so often. Learn that what you need to do is train your mind. Train your mind to start looking for the positives. This is so difficult. But look for the positives, especially with family members God bless you as you endeavor to do this. Look for the positives when you're disappointed. Look for the positives when somebody forgot you. They forgot something they told you they would do. Look for the positives. Look for, for those things that are beneficial in this. Refrain from getting so upset about so many things. There are some individuals that live angry. They get mad about the weather. It snowed. They're mad. If it didn't snow, then they're upset. They're upset about, you know, the paycheck that they get. It's not enough. And then they're upset about the gifts that they get because they're not as good as they can find fault with everything. And the Bible tells us it is the discretion of man to defer his anger. It is his glory to pass over transgression. Can I, can I use a modern translation that might put it in a little bit different speak? Good, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is one's glory to overlook offenses. To just say, okay, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal that I'm in a store and I'm walking down the aisle and I saw somebody from church. And that person looked up, they saw me, they turned around, they went to another aisle. I know they've got something real, you know, now I'm really mad. If it's that big of a problem, go and talk with them. Chances are they didn't even see you. Have you ever been in a store, look around and didn't see the people right in front of you? Okay. This is me. I'm standing up here and I'm saying, Pastor Art, where are you tonight? And where is he? He's right where he's supposed to be, right here. Okay? And we do that. We, we, we can make mistakes. We can overlook. Somebody can walk in a store. And, haven't you ever done this? 
Somebody says, I saw you driving down the street, I waved at you, and you didn't wave. And they're upset with you because you've snubbed them. Hey, if I don't know who's waving at me, what do you normally do? Everybody who waves to you, and then you find out they're waving at somebody behind you? So my response is, if I don't know who it is, I don't, I don't wave back because I don't know what's going on here. And I've offended people who have come to me and said, you didn't wave at me. I didn't know it was you. Well, you should have known. I, when I see you on Sundays, you look different than what I saw you on the street corner. Okay? I had that the other day. Somebody ran into me at Lowe's and they said, I almost didn't recognize you. You weren't in your usual attire. I don't wear this to Lowe's. Okay? <laughs> So those things happen, okay? Have a little bit of discretion that says, okay, not everybody in the world is after me. Here, how do we better handle conflicts? Okay, we, we don't want to do those things, okay? Can I give you some family suggestions on what to do when tensions arise? Can, can I give you some really practical advice that you could apply to your family, to your kids, to your relationship with your spouse, to relationship with others who are living in your house, whoever they may be, that may be beneficial before, before issues arise. When you are in a peaceful moment, when you have life going on and there's not a crisis, then do this, okay? Do these practical things. Be committed. Talk and say, we're going to commit ourselves to family unity. Okay, this has to be a verbal agreement is what we're after. A discussion that says we're going to commit that we're going to work. I as a dad, I'm going to commit to you kids that what we're going to do, we're going to work at trying to have a peaceful, good, godly atmosphere here. And we're going to work at these things. And I vow, I as a spouse, I'm going to work at this marriage relationship. I as, as a brother and sister, we're going to work at this. I as a teen at home, mom, dad, I, I want to work that we have a good relationship that when it comes to a point that I leave the home, I leave in a good standing, not in conflict. So you want you want to commit to each other that we're going to work this way. By the way, dads, this is your responsibility to take charge of this. To set up this type of an environment where you can have a family council, a family meeting, and set some of these ground rules. The one ground rules we're committed this way. Number two, here's some basic ground rules. Here's what we're going to do when tensions are arising. Here's what we're going to do in our marriage when tensions are... Here's what we're going to do with me as a parent with teens. Here's the game plan we're going to have. When all of a sudden things are getting tense in our conversation, what are we going to do? Here's some basic ground rules, okay? You've got to set these before facing the situation. You make sure everyone in the family knows the ground rules. Make sure that they all understand this. And it's amazing how they can understand from little on. You talk about it and you make it very simple and you commit that you're going to follow them, and then you as parents, let's say with kids, you follow them as well. You don't, get the, you, know, you don't get a special card that you're the parent. You can do something different. This is what you commit to. Here's some practical things you commit to. Okay? It goes this way. You promise that if there are conflicts that are bothering, we're going to talk about them. If we've got something that is disturbing my sleep, this is something that I'm not handling well, we need to talk we need to talk as a parent-child. We need to talk as brother and sister. We need to talk as husband and wife. We need to talk about it. You make this commitment. We're going to talk through, and we're not going to let issues fester. 
Number two, here's one. You attack the conflict, not the other person. This is a ground rule. That when we have a conflict, we are going to address the conflict. We're not going to do this stuff, this kind of stuff. We're not going to focus on, on finding who's to blame, who's to blame, who's to blame. I understand that we need to find out cause and, and effect. I understand that. But we can get so hung up at times on finding out who did this, whose fault it is that we forget looking for a solution. That instead of saying, we've got to resolve the problem, we get all hung up on who made the problem, who made the problem, and the discussion goes at blame and accusation and attack instead of, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to correct it? Okay? Here's the idea. Is you stop fixating on getting so upset, but rather correct the problem. Okay? So if we have one of these issues, that let me give you a silly issue, okay? Silly issue in my mind. Every time I get in the car, the gas gauge reads E. And I keep telling Deb, it doesn't mean enough. It means empty. And that little voice that goes, gas is almost gone. Gas is almost gone. That ding, 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 ding. That's an alert. You've got to go buy gas. Don't leave it so that when I get in the car and I want to make an emergency run somewhere, I've got to stop and do something like that. And then I get all frustrated, all flustered, all bothered, and I think, Deb never, and I use those terms in my mind, she never fills the gas tank up. She never, and then, I, then if I'm not careful, it just starts running. She never makes sure that there's enough of the favorite drink that I want. She never makes sure there's enough chocolate chip cookies in the cookie jar. She never makes sure that the M&M jar isn't full. And I start running rampant. Okay, stop that. Stop those. Stop those things. Stop getting so upset over the little things. And then just blaming, blaming, blaming. And come up with a solution. The solution is, okay, if that were a real issue, <laughs> if it were, um, you know, then it means when I see the car is half full, I might as well just avoid a problem by filling it up instead of testing her to see if she will mature enough to fill up the tank. <laughs> People do that. This happens in relationships. Find a solution. Here, let me give you something else. Okay, let me add this. You, when we talk about attacking the conflict, if you refuse to talk, if you refuse to share, if you refuse to in this discussion to open up, you are leaving it to attacking one another. You're using the silence as a verbal assault. Stop it. Grow up. Give up, and move forward in a relationship. Let me add something else. Promise you will practice self-control. Promise in your discussions you will practice self-control. There's no yelling. There's no screaming. There's no cussing. There's no slamming the doors. When in counseling I've suggested this to people, some of the response is, yeah, but you know, you know it never happens that way. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you can live without yelling and screaming and slamming doors. It's possible. For years here, we have started off every year with the deacons' meetings. And many of the men can attest to this. That every year we get together with the deacons and we say, here's one of our ground rules. And we have several ground rules. We are going to be careful what we say. There's going to be confidentiality here. We're not going to be recording. We're not going to be doing things that could possibly get some of those 
private conversations. There's not that many, but when they do come up, they're not going to be something that could, could cause a lot of conflict. We have ground rules that when we make recommendations, how we're going to make those recommendations. One of the ground rules that has been set and we repeat every year, if we have discussions, if the eight deacons are there and there's a discussion and it starts to be getting tense, if there's a disagreement and there's, you know, the voices are trying to say, yeah, but this or yeah, but that. If it gets to the point, if it ever gets to the point that it's all of a sudden becoming emotional and it's getting where somebody's getting angry, we cancel the meeting. We stop. Christian gentlemen do not have to be blowing up and getting angry with one another. And in all the years that we've had meetings, every month, most every month, we have never never had a situation where the deacons have gotten angry or said something out of turn to one another or have we always agreed in those meetings? No. But has there been a commitment that says we will conduct ourselves with grace and with kindness and self-control? Yes. Is it possible to do that? Absolutely. Does your family have to have it where the parents are yelling at the teens and vice versa? It doesn't have to be that way. Now, I may be dumb, and I forget a lot of things. I forget my kids' names. Okay? I forget, you know, birthdays. And maybe I'm just living in a, in a world, in a daydream world, but when I ask my kids, they confirm this. When I ask my wife, they confirm this. We don't, any of us, remember a time in our family. I'm not saying this because, you know, we're special. I'm just saying it can be done. None of us remember a time when we got into any form of a yelling match in our family ever, where it got a verbal tirade, where there was that upsetness that it turned into an angry conversation between the parents and the teens. Now, between the teens, the kids with one another, they will attest that happens sometimes. When we weren't in the house, that some things, you know, got verbal slings. But none of us remember any conversation where the kids were yelling at us and we were yelling at the kids. We don't remember any time like that. Again, we may be dumb, but I believe biblically that we can operate that way as families. If we are committed to saying, okay, now, do I remember times that it says, I can't talk about it right now? If I say anything more, we could get into something that's ungodly. I remember those moments and saying, I need a timeout. You need a timeout. And doing those types of things. Practice self-control. Promise you will be respectful. In your conversations between you and your spouse, you and your kids, you and your parents, promise that the words you use and the way you say them, we will be respectful. And I thank God. I thank God for our deacons who have always treated the staff, the pastoral staff, with such respect, with such, with such self-control at times when we have really done things that they could have, you know, they could have been very disappointed in us. But God has gotten, a number of those men have been such an example to me by being respectful at all times. Let me give you something else. Promise to keep your conflicts private. Promise your family members, if we have this discussion, if I have, if you and I, here's one for you. Husbands and wives have their discussion. They have a disagreement. And the disagreement means that there's now some tensions going. And one of them comes to church, and they're very upset. And somebody at church says to them, I can see you're upset, what's going on? And they start unloading on how their spouse has disappointed them. And then they go home, and they're mad at their spouse, and the next time they come to church, 
the spouse comes walking in, they're in together. And that person to whom one of them in anger shared things, that person walks up and says, hey, I'm praying for you in your marriage, and catches the one off guard. What do you think happens then? What do you think that person who wasn't here the uh, last week, but their mate unloaded on somebody else, what do they think their, their mate is doing? Telling everyone. And everyone in church knows our problems. I have had more people say, I'm not coming to church because everybody in church knows we have some difficulties going. Don't. Don't go, and if you're angry, don't go telling everybody and their brother. Keep it private and respectful to your spouse. Now, are there moments you need, we might need mediation? Are there moments you might need intervention? That's, that's a gimme. But please, please, for the sake of your kids, for the sake of your spouse, please keep privacy a very, very high priority. Allow for questions and answers. What I mean by this is, is this. As a parent, I come home one day, and I've used this as an illustration before. I come home one day, and Tony was not doing what I had told him to do before we left the house. He was supposed to do some chore. I came into the house. The chore was obviously not done. And so I, in my mind, have now relegated Tony to be the most lazy teenager in the entire world that he doesn't listen to this one chore that I gave him. He's a worthless bag of skin. All this is going on in seconds in my mind. Now, you would never think this. This is my evil heart. Okay. And I'm really upset with him. And when I come walking into the house, I am after Tony. Okay. To you, he's Pastor Tony. To me, he's just lazy. Okay. So I'm after him. And I'm seeking him to the house. My wife says, what's wrong? Nothing. Where's Tony? And I'm on a mission. Seek and destroy. Where is this child? Where is this teenager who didn't do the one thing that I wanted him to do that day? And I find him up in his room. He's doing something that's goofy, that's a waste of time, like homework. He's not doing what I told him to do. And so I'm mad at him. And my first, uh, my first thing was, why are you so lazy? I don't know. I guess I got it in my genes. You know, some, some smart-mouth smart answer like that comes out of his mouth. And, and, you know, it was just... And it was like, okay, I need a timeout. So I was sent to my room, okay? And I'm there with the Holy Spirit. That's my wife, okay, at this moment, telling me, you need to calm down. What's going on? And the Holy Spirit and I are having this conversation, and I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, those words, you're right, just couldn't come out of my lips. But it was in my spirit. I knew that, that she was right. And I come out, and I said, okay, Tony, here's the deal. I had told you to do this one task. You didn't do the task. Why not? You know, and, he, and we had made an agreement in our home that there's going to be a way of verbally talking with respect and give an opportunity to ask questions. And so it was in the conversation. It was basically I found out that when he got home, before he even walked through the door, Deb had given him another project. She didn't know I had given him that project. She gave him another one, and he was focusing on that other project. And that, therefore, that took care of the one, and I came home before he got to the second one. But I was ready to just, you know, seek and destroy. You know, I brought you into this world. I can take you out attitude. And yet he had a very legitimate reason why he didn't do the project. He had a conflict of authorities. 
if we didn't have some ground rules by which they could say, can I ask a question? Can I clarify? But me and my anger and the way I grew up would be, I'm in the home, I'm going to tell you what to do, you don't get an opportunity to even ask me a question because you're wrong. And so we developed a a system, and what we've recommended to people is this, is somewhere in here, give an opportunity for your family members when you are frustrated or something to say, may I ask a question, please? May I, you know... You know, do I have, you know, give some terms, something there that they know, that the young people know they can ask you before you discipline them and send them to Siberia. Can they get some kind of information across to you? By the way, would this help in some marital situations? That might, might I be able to explain something before you blow up? Have some method of communication that calls for a timeout. Maybe you want to do that. Timeout. Okay. Now, when we just did this with our kids, as time went by, some of our younger kids got clever with it. Every time something came up, timeout, 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 no more. Okay. There has to be a limit to it. But there needs to be some communication. As well as if there's a moment where in this this moment of anger, what happens if I'm excited? You, you can tell I'm, I'm bearing my sin nature here this evening that I'm, I have, you know, I assume things. I just think I'm the worst sinner in this room, that I think negative at times of people and assume my kids, my wife, that they're, you know, that Deb's goal in the world is to leave the gas tank empty. I make that assumption and it's like, that's so silly. There's got to be something that if all of a sudden if in the tension of the moment, in the anger of the moment, in the conversation, we don't want to explode. We want to practice self-control. But what if that person who I'm talking to keeps on, keeps on, and I can't handle it? My buttons are being pushed. I've not had a good day. I'm, I'm stressed from work. Some of you are, are doing the 60-hour, 70-hour work week. This is not the moment to discuss. The gas tank was empty. And you need, you need a moment. Set up a system that you can communicate with one another that says, I need a break. I need a timeout. You know, throw a word at each other. That our communication word might be uncle. Something that says, I need time. This is not the moment. If, if you pursue this, I'm, it's going to get ugly. Timeout. Whatever term. Have a term that gives you an opportunity to walk away. It might, be, it might be this. It might be you've got tensions going early in the morning. Isn't it great to have something tense grow up and it will come up in the morning? Just when you have to go to work. Just when you have to get kids to school. Just when everything is, and you can't continue the conversation right now. But you have to be able to communicate that says, okay, we need a time out, we need a break. But when you have set up the rules for this, and whatever term you have, whether it be uncle or whatever, with it is a commitment that you will come back to the discussion within 24 hours. That you will revisit this when you're calmed down. And they know you will revisit this within the next 24 hours. This isn't an escape. This is just to calm things down. 
Have a game plan. Have something that says we're going to, we're going to do... You, you'll never do this in the middle of an argument. Have a game plan ahead of time. Have a game plan so you know to control your tongue, your temper, by making commitments. Now, what happens if you're in the middle of it? You're all of a sudden, things are starting to explode, and they're inside. They're starting to explode. You're tense. You're upset. What do you do? Let's go back to our anachronism here. Problems can strengthen our relationships forever. Start with P. The P means the first thing you do when you feel that there's a tense moment rising, you pray to yourself. You pray, Lord, help me with my feelings. Are these feelings proper? Lord, why am I upset? Is it worth it? Ask for help. Pray. You can do that in a matter of seconds. Pray, God, please. Don't pray imprecatory prayers. Pray for your wisdom, your understanding. Number two, what you do is you calm down. You mentally, you, ver- you somehow, you work this out that you calm down you stop the anger, you stop and you calm down. Maybe it's for, for me, this was very important, to, stop, to learn in calming down to just pause and listen. Let the others speak. Because I had all kinds of assumptions. I had all kinds of conclusions. Calm down. Don't rewrite the story. Don't rewrite history. If you need the time out, calm down. Let me give you another one. S, speak non-defensively. Speak non-defensively. What I mean by that is this, okay? Don't, when somebody comes and they start talking to you, don't immediately assume this is an attack. Don't go into the defense, defensive mode. Don't, don't strike out at them. Just listen. Be respectful. Okay? Just go into a mode where what I say, I might have to ask questions. Well, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to. What do you mean by that? You know, here, you know, speak non-defensively. I'm, I'm going to build this up a little bit more. Let's do the O. Okay, open up to the other's opinions. This is probably the most critical of these thoughts. Be open to the other's op- opinions. What I mean by that is this, and we shared this again five years ago in one session, is validate what the other person is saying. It's amazing what happens. We can diffuse situations that we start to validate. If we start to say, you know, what you're saying has some merit, instead of becoming defensive. You never fill the gas tank. That's an attack. Okay? The response is going to create defensiveness if, if she's not careful. She would respond and say, yeah, I do, and boom, 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 and then we start arguing over, over the dumb gas tank and getting all flustered about it. And then it, it can go into all kinds of things about you know, how this or that. It's, you know how she could easily diffuse if I say you never fill the gas tank? She could validate it and say, yeah, too frequently I do that. Oh boy, but that just took the wind out of all my argument. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Okay, in some silly illustrations that talk about marriage and parenting. Let's do this one. Okay, you didn't tell me your dad was coming. The response could be this. Yes, I did. The response is, you did not. The response, I did too. You just don't listen to me. Okay, now we've started the argument. Now we started this, you know, this accusation one against another. How about validating? How about doing a little bit different? You didn't tell me your dad was coming. You know, I thought I did. Maybe I didn't. I'm sorry. Whew, what a different approach. Totally different in this discussion. Well, maybe you did, but it didn't register with me. Hey, if I did, I should have been clear. I hope it's okay. Now you're sitting there and thinking, oh, that happens on TV land. Okay. <laughs> No, it can happen in your home where it becomes more civil and gracious. Let me give you an illustration. Not this. You never take me out anymore. Response, 
That's a lie. I take you out a lot. Last month we went to Lowe's and then McDonald's. Besides, usually when I ask you to go out, you complain about we don't have a babysitter. Okay, do this. Okay, we haven't gone out for a while, have we? Response, maybe you're right. Validating. Maybe you're right. But I thought it wasn't so long ago. We should plan to do something yet this month. Her response, if you want, I can check on a babysitter. Hint, hint, hint. Let's do it. You say, oh, wait, wait a minute. You know, let's leave it to Beaver's parents. It can be your family. Okay, let's do this. Not this. Why is it supper is never ready when I get home? By the way, did you notice how good I said that? I've had practice at this one. Okay. I've been busy with the kids. Maybe you could help when you get home instead of heading for the couch. Hmm. I work hard all day and need to unwind a bit when I get home. Well, I'd like a break too, and how about you helping me a bit and talking to me? Just a thank you would be nice once in a while to know that you care. Well, I could use a little bit of concern and appreciation for all that I do. Response, it would be nice if my husband would show that he's glad to see me when he comes home. It would be nice if you would show me you're glad when I come home too. Okay, her response, well, yeah, I'd like a little bit of romance once in a while. I think Royers is still selling the flowers. Okay, we've got the fighting, the, the attack mode going. Can we change it up? Okay, can we change up and do this? Work at this. Why is it supper's never ready? I know supper's important to you. Sorry. It's hectic, the kids and all. I know when you're home, you're tired, but maybe you could help a little bit before you turn on TV. Totally different attitude. Totally different approach. Response, I realize you do a lot. I appreciate to tell you the truth. I really need just a few minutes to unwind. I understand that. But after work and the kids, I could use a little bit of your help and attention too. It's a big pick-me-up. Response could be, I can understand that. When you pay me attention, that encourages me too. Would it work if every other day we do this? One day I get a few minutes alone before supper. The next day I can help you in the kitchen. We can talk about things setting supper. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. It's obvious both of us are needy people. Response, maybe it'll work that I can take the kids one or two nights a week so you can relax. This doesn't have to be make-believe. This can be real-life Christian home. This can be how people would respond. If we learn to just validate the other person, here's one for you. This would never happen in your home. Okay. Why is it your room is such a disaster to the teen? Okay. When I was a kid, I wouldn't dare be so messy. It'd be great if you'd clean it just once in a while. Okay, response. I do clean it at times, but it's never good enough for you, so why should I bother? Parent response. Don't you talk to me that way. I'm your mother. I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Response. Fine. I won't talk to you at all. Besides, I never asked to be born into this family. I remember those conversations growing up. Now, none of you probably ever did. Again, I'm, I'm this you know, scumbag of, of doing things wrong. But we had this. This was our typical conversation in my whole family growing up. How about this? Why is your room such a disaster? Did you have such a busy day? You weren't able to get to it? Response, you're right. I know it needs cleaning. She's validating what the parents said. I know you're right. I, I, you've mentioned it before. I'm planning on getting it shortly. Thank you. I appreciate when you do that. It's a big help. You do a good job most every time. Response, yeah, thanks. I try, but I'm sure I could do better. It's a whole different change of approaching things. Is it possible to operate this way by getting control of our tongues and our temper? The answer is yes. In fact, let's add these last two thoughts and wrap up. Repeat. What I mean by that is do what we have just said over and over and over and over again. Make it so it's your typical response, not a rare response. And then do this. 
The F stands for forgiven, for be forgiven. That you need to have a forgiving spirit, that you need to say, we've made mistakes, we need to start again. And you start again, and you start again, and you start again, and you say, okay, what do we need to do? Where does this all go? It goes back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Remember in 1 Peter 3, finally, all of you, that includes you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless the other person. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and keep his lips from speaking dishonestly. Let him turn away from evil, do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Don't do evil, do right. Father, help me, help my friends to better get a grip, a better grip on our tongues, on our temper, so that we would honor you in the days ahead. Thank you for the attentiveness of these good folk. Bless our fellowship in Christ's name. Amen.